the fourth step on this purification process is called purification by overcoming doubt. It's an important step because it puts us solidly on the spiritual path. If we have been able to overcome many different doubts which we have. Maybe the first one we could say is the doubt whether it's actually necessary to have a spiritual path. Other people seem to have it much easier. They don't have a spiritual path. (laughs) (laughs) And the second doubt that we have is whether we've chosen the right one. And having overcome all those two, we have to still overcome the doubt that besets us regarding the actuality, the actuality of this absolute truth that the Buddha taught because it doesn't seem apparent to us. The absolute truth which he taught cannot be seen with our physical eye. It cannot be grasped with any of our senses. So, of course, we have doubts. Now, there are five spiritual qualities which help us to become more proficient at overcoming this doubt. They help us to work a little better at this whole difficulty that everybody experiences. These five spiritual faculties eventually turn into the five spiritual powers. And in both instances, as faculties and as powers, they are part of the 37 factors of enlightenment. In fact, there are 10 of those factors. So you can see that they're very important. The Buddha compared them to a set of horses pulling a carriage. One is a lead horse and then there are two pairs. Now the lead horse can go as fast as it wishes. doesn't matter. The others have to follow or as slow as it wishes. But the pairs have to go at the same speed because if one goes faster than the other then the carriage will topple. So we have to have balance with those. The lead horse is mindfulness. It is also the first factor of the seven factors of enlightenment. And as I mentioned earlier today, those things that are mentioned first are not necessarily more important, but they open the door for us. And here again, it's mentioned first as the lead horse. Mindfulness, bare attention, introspection, 
awareness, knowing what's going on. Primarily within oneself. But eventually, we can branch out. And we can also pay attention to people and situations around us without judgment. It's a very valuable exercise because our surroundings, the people around us, are our mirrors. We can only see in them what we have already experienced ourselves. So if there's somebody near us whom we don't like because of a certain quality, we can be quite sure we've got it. It's a guarantee. If we do not judge that person for that quality, but just notice it, then it's very likely that we have had that quality and have overcome it. But as long as we're judging, we've still got it. And that is a very valuable understanding because in a mirror we can only see what is standing in front of it. And that's why we say only a Buddha knows a Buddha. We don't know what a Buddha is like. So even if you were sitting right here, we wouldn't know it was a Buddha. But we certainly know what an angry person is like. We've been that ourselves. We have no problem recognizing that. We also have no problem recognizing what a person is like who is um, not very considerate because we ourselves have been inconsiderate. We also know what a person is like who is aggressive. We've been that ourselves. We can not only hear it, we can feel it. It's like we have a connection to that. But we do not have a connection to enlightenment yet. So we can't feel it, even if it was sitting right next to us. So we see in our environment, in other people, a mirroring of ourselves. And mindfulness as our quality, being strictly only awareness, does not become judgmental. And not being judgmental, we can use it on the people around us. As soon as we become judgmental, it's no longer a mindfulness. <coughs> Primarily, of course, it's directed towards ourselves and it has the four foundations which we have already discussed. Body, feeling, mental direction, the direction of the thought, and the content. The importance of mindfulness 
has to be stressed over and over again because it's the only thing that makes it possible to recognize and then change. There's no other way of recognition. It's that certain quality in oneself which looks and sees. We never will see everything within ourselves that's difficult. We all have a blind spot, like when driving a car, there's a blind spot. can't be helped. It's there. That will only go with enlightenment, that last blind spot. But the less we have of blind spots, the easier it is to know ourselves. The injunction of a number of the great sages, something that was the only thing they taught, has been know thyself or who am I? Well, that's all the same thing as mindfulness. What is all this that's going on in me? Why why do I dislike this and like that? Why do I become perturbed and angry and upset and worried and depressed and all these things? And mindfulness will also show us if we use our environment as a mirror the things which are desirable. We do not only see such things which are not pleasant in others. We will see things which are pleasant. And we can infer from that too that that is a mirror. And we can become aware of the fact that these things in us can be strengthened. Mindfulness is taught by the Buddha in conjunction with clear comprehension. Mindfulness is called Sati in Pali, S-A-T-I. And clear comprehension is Sampanyanya. These two work together. And he mentions them together many times. Mindfulness is strictly knowing. No judging. No discriminating. It's called knowing only. Being fully aware. But clear comprehension has to enter into the picture in order to make it possible for us to know whether a thought is wholesome or unwholesome. And clear comprehension has four steps which is valuable for us to practice and to know and to use habitually because they slow us down if we use those four steps and they protect us from instinctive, impulsive reaction. The first step is to investigate the purpose of our thought or speech or action. What's the purpose? Naturally, we would like to find a good purpose for it. So if we're satisfied that the purpose we have in mind 
is valuable and useful, then we make the next inquiry. Am I using the most skillful means? Anything we do needs skillful means. This is a a statement by the Buddha which is repeated many times. Even our best purpose can be thwarted if our means are not suitable. (coughs) And the third step is the most essential one because it will give credibility to our purpose and also to our means are both within the Dhamma. Now you see, we may have a person who is intending to rob a bank. It's not unknown. So he makes that investigation. What's my purpose? Is it a good one? Well, certainly it's a good one. I need the money if the bank doesn't. Okay. Then, next inquiry. Am I using the most skillful means? Well, certainly, I've got the best equipment and, <laughs> and I know exactly where the burglar alarm is. So I've got the best skillful means. But if we then were to investigate the third step, is it within the Dhamma, he would soon find out, if he knows the Dhamma, that he is breaking the second precept not to steal. This is just an application of this explanation which is very easy to understand because it's so obvious and absurd. But in all our investigations we have to make sure whether our purpose and our means are both within virtues and moral conduct. There are never the, the considerations that the end excuses the means. There's no such thing in the Dhamma. Both have to be virtuous and have moral conduct at their base and have to have that Dhammic quality of being wholesome beneficial to oneself and others. Now we have a great protection system built in within. The Buddha calls it Hiriyotapa. In English that's literally translated shame and fear. But we can call it our conscience. We've all got it. Sometimes we'd like to shut it up. But if we are honest to ourselves, it will continue to speak to us. And that's our guardian. The Buddha said, shame and fear are the guardians of the world. When shame of evil doing and fear of punishment disappear, we have chaos which we have often had 
in the past decades. Chaotic situations where human rights are totally trampled upon because shame has gone by the wayside and fear of punishment has been totally lost because it wasn't being used punishment. And the chaotic situation which arises from that is then a matter of total loss of the Dhamma qualities. So we ourselves have this built in, a conscience. We are ashamed to do the wrong things and we do fear that we will be looked upon badly. We may not fear punishment because we may not do something that terrible. But the fear even of being ostracized or talked about is enough. And to be ashamed. So we have all that. And that protects us. And if we do not want to listen to it, we can be quite sure that something is going wrong. Anyone who is looking or is treading on a spiritual path and is doing meditation has either already listened to his or her conscience and been able to overcome the difficulties of this basic um, bad behavior or is about to do so because one cannot continue otherwise. The fourth step on clear comprehension is the investigation whether one's purpose has been fulfilled. And if not, why not? What went wrong? Now we may have had the best purpose in mind of telling somebody else the truth. And we thought we were using the best skillful means by being very logical, very rational, very kind and we thought that the whole thing was within the Dhamma because it was truthful and it was supposed to help that person but the other person got angry what happened? obviously something went wrong so we have to check back on it and see was it the purpose or were the means one of the two must have been at fault, or both. And we can see that and learn from that. The main purpose of this clear comprehension is our ability to discriminate between that which we have found through mindfulness and is wholesome and that which is unwholesome. So every time we watch our thought process to see whether it's wholesome or unwholesome, we're using clear comprehension. And clear comprehension is that which gives mindfulness its seal. <coughs> mindfulness as such can be used by our bank robber very well after he has ascertained that his purpose is all right, his means are fine, and he doesn't know anything about the Dhamma anyway, he has to be extremely mindful 
so that he isn't caught. He has to watch every step he takes. He have to, has to watch every hand movement that he makes. Otherwise, he's going to land in jail in no time. So his mindfulness is there, but his clear comprehension is lacking. Therefore, the two have to go together. And we, we all have that quality within, and all we have to do is cultivate more of it. When we cultivate our mindfulness, we will automatically try to cultivate our clear comprehension because we are not the kind of people who will blindly just pay attention. We will want to know whether this is useful, valuable or beneficial, profitable to us. With mindfulness as the lead horse, we then have two pairs. The first pair is called faith and wisdom. And the Buddha compared faith to a blind giant who meets up with a very sharp-eyed cripple called wisdom. And this blind giant called faith says, to the sharp-eyed cripple called wisdom I'm very strong but I can't see at all now you're quite weak but you've got very sharp eyes please come and ride on my shoulders together we'll go far blind faith can move mountains but unfortunately being blind doesn't know which mountain needs moving. (laughs) (laughs) So it has to have wisdom as its associate. Now we also do not necessarily translate the word sadha, which is the Pali word for that, as faith, because it does have a bit of a connotation in English. We often translated as confidence but no matter how we call it in this explanation it's quite well to call it faith it is the heart quality and wisdom is the mind quality and since we have both we obviously need to use both we know that it's been found out that the left half of our brain is concerned with logic and the right half with feeling. Now, that means one with the mind quality of reasoning and the other one with the heart quality of feeling. We wouldn't like to be with just one half of our brain, would we? We need both. And we have to bring both to bear on the spiritual path because without one or the other it will not flourish. Faith is that quality within us which gives us devotion. Devotion to practice, 
and primarily to an ideal. From the explanations which we can get about the Dhamma, it must eventually become clear to us that this is an ideal. An ideal which is worth emulating. An ideal which is worth keeping in one's heart. An ideal which is worth not only knowing, but making it so familiar to one that eventually one can (coughs) get near it and be part of it. All that's only possible through the quality of love and devotion, which, of course, result in confidence. The mind quality, which has wisdom in it, is necessary to understand what we need to do. Devotion alone isn't going to get us there. But the understanding alone isn't either. Because we will be tempted to intellectualize, to conceptualize, to think about it. And it is a fact that the mileage between that what we know and that what we can do is enormous. We know far more than what we can actualize in ourselves. I'm sure we've all known for years on end that we are supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. There's no difficulty knowing that. Everybody knows it. The whole world knows it. And who's doing it? The difference between that what we know and what we do is so big because the doing is far more difficult. (coughs) The knowing is much easier. And we are, everybody is tempted to imagine that because one knows it, it's done. This is a danger in reading and in also writing and in talking. Because when we read, write and verbalize, it seems as if it's totally clear, there's no doubt about it, we've overcome all doubt and it's done. So it isn't sufficient to know and to understand. It's got to be loved. And with that, when we love it, we have opened our heart, we are aware of our feelings, and loving it, we will try to become it. And this is what the Buddha meant when he said, Who sees me, the Buddha, sees the Dhamma. Who sees the Dhamma, sees me. Buddha is not, although it is a historical person, for us, for us it's not a person. It's the enlightenment principle. So whoever sees enlightenment principle, sees Dhamma within the heart. (coughs) Whoever sees Dhamma within the heart 
receive the enlightenment principle we have to see it with our heart and mind quality we can't see it with our physical eyes that's obvious faith and confidence are like starting motors they give us that impetus to do and to continue doing without them we will very often fall prey to the third hindrance sloth and torpor but faith and confidence are (coughs) antidotes they are the strongest antidotes we can find and they will continually help us to keep going even into unknown territory because we have the confidence and the love in the heart for this ideal which we have understood but which we haven't actually visited yet so we are constantly confronting new and uncharted vistas which we are not familiar with but because there is faith and confidence we are willing to try it out otherwise we wouldn't be willing we would draw back in fear wisdom has three phases the first phase is knowledge information it's essential we've got to know something we don't have to know everything but we've got to know something we have to have (coughs) some information about the spiritual path it mustn't be a total blank hoping for the best and um, not knowing exactly where we're going Sloth and torpor is often induced through the fact that we don't have a good direction in our lives because we haven't got enough information. So the first step for wisdom is information. The second one is remembering and practicing. That which we have been informed about has to be remembered and then practiced. And the third step then is the understood experience. Having practiced it, we will have an experience and having had the information, we will understand it. This is a very important aspect of wisdom. It's the only way it can arise. Because we may have some really interesting experiences, but if we don't know what they are and whether they will help us on the spiritual path. We may never repeat them and we may have no benefit from them. If we don't understand our experiences, we cannot gain by them. If there's a small child and we tell that child, please don't touch this hot stove, you're going to burn your hand, it will probably do it anyway. 
but having touched it and burned its hand, it will then no longer do it. It has understood the experience. So being told doesn't really do it. That's just information. But if we then remember it and practice it, if the child had remembered that information and had actually practiced it, it wouldn't have burned its hand. It would have been without the burn and would have had the experience of not touching the stove and thereby being safe. So unless we remember and practice, we're not going to get the experience and unless we have the information we're not going to understand it so we need all of that and that's how wisdom comes to us wisdom is not possible to impart to another only information is possible nothing else so all you can get and all you are getting is information. Wisdom is up to everybody, themselves. The second pair that has to be in balance is energy and concentration. And that is something that we notice in our meditation practice if there's too much physical energy and no concentration there's enormous restlessness if there's too much concentration and no energy there is tiredness lack of awareness mental energy has to be balanced with concentration if the mental energy is slack and the mind does concentrate because it's not being disturbed because there isn't any energy to disturb it it's a dreamlike quality it can actually be something like a trance it's very easy to know whether one has been in a trance or not if one thinks one might have been concentrated but isn't quite sure at the end of the meditation if it has been a dreamlike trance-like state one feels very tired at the end of the meditation and would like to go to bed if one has been concentrated with mental energy to the point where it was true concentration one feels extremely energetic at the end of the meditation and is quite happy and willing to do many things including meditating again no question about going to bed so it's a very easy to check for oneself if one has any doubts about the matter because the mind is a magician and can do anything at all it can do either one of the two and sometimes 
the mind having to recognize the mind also being a magician tells itself stories about it and isn't sure whether the story is true or not so we have checkpoints <coughs> all along the way there are signposts the Buddha gave a road map with the most exact details on it signposts at every corner of course if we don't use the road map to start driving the best road map isn't going to help us but there's another point with a road map which everybody who's ever read a road map knows if we don't know what point we're at the best road map also doesn't have any use for us at all if we don't know whether we're north south east or west which corner we're standing at we haven't got a clue where to look on this road map. So we need personal honesty to ourselves to know exactly where we're at. We need to check. What am I doing with my meditation? How is it going? Am I really getting concentrated? Or am I dreaming? Am I using the mental energy which I have? Everybody has it for the best purpose, namely to consolidate and unify the mind, or am I continually using that same energy for thinking? It's exactly the same energy. It has both abilities. It can think and think and think and use up its energy that way, or it can unify and consolidate and regenerate its energy. Just like the body regenerates its energy through going to bed at night and having a rest, the mind has only one ability, one way of regenerating its energy, and that is to concentrate, unify, consolidate, stop thinking. When it's thinking, it is squandering its energy. When it's consolidating and unifying, it is renewing it. It's the only way we can ever renew it. And after having used it for several decades already, without any rest for it, thinking all day, dreaming all night, it certainly needs regeneration. It needs to be treated with the utmost <coughs> care and concern so that it can give of its best. We ourselves are the beneficiaries of that. So energy and concentration will have to be continually balanced in our meditation practice. And the whole of these five spiritual faculties are actually meditation instructions. The Buddha gave dozens and dozens of meditation instructions and this is one of them in a very um, sort of telegram style succinct form. Mindfulness is the first step because we have to be 
mindful and attentive to the meditation subject. <clears throat> Confidence and wisdom are calm and insight. Wisdom is insight. It's the understood experience. But with the feeling of confidence as our support without fear to let go to be confident that we can actually do it and letting ourselves go into the meditation subject without drawing back we become concentrated and then as we experience the calm of that we have to continue to balance concentration with energy because when we have already become concentrated and are in any of the um, states of absorption, meditative absorption, it's very easy to let go of the energy and revert to a state which is unclear. So the whole five spiritual faculties have their application on the meditative path, but equally so have their application for our whole attempt on spiritual living and are concerned with the things outside of meditation just as much as inside the meditation. Mindfulness is our daily activity. Faith and wisdom are essential to make us stay with the spiritual um, practice. And energy and concentration are also necessary in order to facilitate all our activities. If we have no energy, we will fall into sloth and torpor. If we have no concentration, we will not be able to do the things we do well. So whatever we learn in meditation can be used in daily living. As much as we practice in daily life will help us in our meditation. The two have to work together and always will. And the same qualities which are useful for one are just as beneficial for the other. The one that is most difficult for Westerners is faith and devotion. It's has gone out of fashion. It used to be quite fashionable in the last century, but in this one it's no longer talked about. This is a quality which is quite prevalent in the East. But the investigative quality which the Westerner has is not so prominent in the Eastern. So I've always been wishing and hoping that we could sort of mesh the two together and we'd have a, a wonderful um, quality, the two together, like <coughs> mixing milk with water and that goes into each other completely. 
but unfortunately that can't be done so we each have to do it for ourselves we each have to arouse both qualities now because we have far more of the investigative ability we should use it in order to find out whether that alone will actually be sufficient or whether we cannot also arouse the heart quality to be really loving and committed to the growth that comes through spiritual practice and where we can see an ideal which we may not fully grasp but which obviously has something in it which is very desirable since we can't get these qualities from the outside we have to arouse them in on the inside inside ourselves when we do arouse it within it gives a great deal of foundation and support for everything we do not just the practice of a spiritual path because when we have that kind of confidence and devotion to something other than our own sensuality our own uh, comforts our own interests and put ourselves into the pathway something which is universal that has a great deal of impact on our reaction to our daily living and all its difficulties and all its duties and responsibilities because we constantly know breath for just a moment forgive yourself for all the things that you think you may have done wrong in this life forgive yourself for all the thoughts you may have had in this life which were not beneficial and forgive yourself for all the words you may have spoken which may have been detrimental forgive yourself completely recognizing how difficult it is to be a human being and with that forgiveness accept yourself embrace yourself fill yourself 
with love and surround yourself with affection. Now think of the person sitting nearest you and forgive that person completely for anything you may have thought that they did or said. Forgive him or her fully, accepting that person totally with love and compassion. And now extend your forgiveness to everyone here for anything that you may have found difficult or obstructive. Total forgiveness for anything that is within that person in thought, speech or action and fill everyone with love, surround everyone with affection.
Now think of your parents, whether they're still alive or not. Forgive them completely for anything that they may have thought, said or done which was not to your liking or was detrimental to your well-being, detrimental to their well-being. Forgive them, recognizing the difficulty of being a human being, recognizing their dukkha. And with that forgiveness, fill them with acceptance and love. Think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you, those that you may live with. Forgive them for everything that has ever bothered you. Fill them completely with that forgiveness, recognizing their difficulties, their dukkha, and embrace them with love. Think of all your good friends, fill them with your forgiveness for whatever you may have noticed in them that you didn't like. Forgive them for all their thoughts, speech and action. Fill them with that forgiveness, accept them exactly the way they are. Embrace them with love.
think of your neighbors, people at work, acquaintances, people you meet here and there, those that you know or those that you only see. Forgive them for everything that you may ever have noticed in them that may have been objectionable. Accept them just the way they are. Fill them completely with your forgiveness. Embrace them with your love. Think of any one person with whom you may have difficulties, difficulties in relating or in loving. Forgive that person for anything you know about him or her that may be detrimental. Recognizing the difficulty of being a human being, accept that person fully just the way they are. Fill him or her with your forgiveness. Embrace him or her with love. Think of all the people that you've ever met, ever had contact with, have ever seen on your travels or in your town. Try to let them arise before your mind's eye. Fill them with your forgiveness. for anything you may have thought or noticed about them that you didn't like. Forgive them completely. Accept them, embrace them with love.
put your attention back on yourself. Feel the gentleness and softness within which comes from forgiving, from accepting and from loving. Let this gentleness and softness spread within you so that you're totally filled with it and surround yourself with forgiveness and acceptance and love. May people everywhere forgive each other. 